Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. The Trucial States was a British protectorate that became the United Arab Emirates. And the families of the United Arab Emirates came together with the power of Abu Dhabi and their oil to control a large part of the market and culturally to be a huge part of the Arabian Peninsula. Suheil bin Mohammed al-Mazuri joins us right now. He is Energy Minister for the United Arab Emirates, and I'm honored to say from one of our most prestigious petroleum engineering schools, the University of Tulsa. He is hugely qualified to speak on these these matters. Minister, thank you so much for joining Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. I'd like to know the power that Ascendant United Arab Emirates has right now over Russia. Explain the dialogue, explain the change in the relationship of UAE with Russia in the last weeks. Well, it's great to be with you and uh, to address your audiences. Um, uh, First of all, UAE, uh, as you know, is is a member of an alliance uh, called OPEC+. Plus. That alliance, uh, since formed, have uh, been uh, doing a great job, in my view, uh, balancing the market, balancing the supply and demand. And we, uh, we have a history within that alliance, and we've been through wars, we've been, I mean, member countries been through wars, been through conflict, been through uh, 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 sanctions, some of the members, as you know, Iran and, and Venezuela, but something we always do, and that's almost a law uh, in the way that we work, we have one objective only, which is trying to maintain the supply to the, the market and ensure that that supply is affordable. Nowadays, uh, when the geopolitics uh, hits in, uh, we also, the, uh, the price is going higher, and we are... Uh, increasing the production gradually mm-hmm. uh, according to a plan, but we cannot, uh, under any circumstances, uh, see a replacement for 10% of the world production. Right. That's from oil, gas uh, as well. So I don't think practically, if we bring politics into the organization, we can help the consumers. Well, you say we that, would sir- like to help the consumers, whatever. You, you say that, sir, but very importantly, and this is your public service to the Zayed family as well, Mubadala and others within Abu Dhabi are considering their Russian businesses. Should the United Arab Emirates provide sanctions of some form, formal or informal, to Mr. Putin and Russia? Well, I'm not going to talk about the, uh, the politics. I'm here to tell you about the market. I'm, I'm here to tell you what can we do to ensure that the consumers in the U.S., in Europe, and elsewhere are getting an affordable supply of hydrocarbon? And in order for us to do that, we have to use every barrel that is available. If, you, if someone is asking us to let go of 10%, then we are asking, we are telling the consumers that we are going to increase the prices higher. And that is something we cannot be part well, of. We have to be 
we have to be wise in, in what we are asking for. Excuse me, Minister, I am wondering, you keep saying it's important to have affordable uh, gas, affordable crude. What's affordable? What barrel is sort of the line in the sand when it comes to a price point for you? Well, price is a result, uh, and the balance between the supply and demand is that's that's where where we are we are targeting. And we had the five years uh, the five years average, but you know we do our best, and the the world uh, six months ago uh, have convened in COP 26 and asked us and asked the the uh, financial institutions to limit the uh, the uh, financing of, of new oil and gas projects. And that, and now six months after that, they are asking pump more oil. That does not go uh, hand in hand. We need now to put a strategy and we need to come up with the resources to find a new, uh, new, uh, new barrels. Minister, we already lost in the group more than a million barrels. Minister, you raised such an interesting point uh, about the idea that there's been a lack of investment, which has caused uh, a lack of production in this market, which is the reason why people say it's so tight. Given that backdrop, is the level of the price at which there is demand destruction, that supply-demand push and pull, a lot higher than, it's, than it used to be for OPEC? In other words, is $100 a barrel much more sustainable over a longer term for you based on the lack of production and the lack of investment? Well, we always look at the consumers, and we all know that the current prices today are not comfortable to many countries, and they, they, uh, we need to get the prices to something that is reasonable. What is that price level? I think the market will dictate that. It's the balance between the supply and demand. So if we put more resources, we can bring more oil, and we can sustain that oil for years to come. As you know, we're, the world is almost uh, consuming 100 million barrels a day. Every year, we lose 8 millions of that, and that needs investment. Who's investing? Very limited countries are investing or are afford to invest because we've been into a roller coaster from seeing a $20 oil to 100, uh, 100 plus uh, today. So it is not encouraging investments and many countries and shareholders have been, to, have been telling the companies, the IOCs, who are reliable partners and the shale oil producers as well, we're not going to give you the resources to, uh, to grow your production. That is troublesome when you are hit with a geopolitical uh, conflict like we are having today. So what we need to do, we need to get our acts together. We will do whatever we can as an OPEC plus, but we need the, uh, the financial markets, we need the lenders to start easing on financing oil and gas projects so we can bring more barrels in the future. Minister, if you're taking this so seriously, why was the OPEC Plus meeting this month 13 minutes long? Well, uh, we, we, we are meeting in a few days and we are looking at the market. Sure, but that wasn't a question, that Minister. Just to go back to the meeting earlier this month, it was 13 minutes long. This is one of the biggest energy crises we've seen yeah, in a long, so long time, and you had a gathering that lasted 13 minutes. Why should we take what you're doing seriously if you only meet for 13 minutes? Well, there, there, when we meet, we look, we look at the knowns and unknowns. And, uh, and uh, the, there are lots of unknowns at that meeting including how many barrels are we going to miss? And another thing is 
is the deal closed with Iran, which is a, 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 a major uh, partner and, and producer in, uh, in, into the alliance? And how many barrels of the stored mm -hmm. capacity going to come to the market? All of these things are unknown to us. So it's very difficult to come and, and make other than the plans. So we increase the 400,000, and that's what we have agreed to do earlier. Minister, I am fascinated by the view east from Dubai and Abu Dhabi to India. With all of your remit for the Zayed family, can you please explain the India response to this war in Ukraine? There's such an interesting relationship between the United Arab Emirates and India. Please explain to us the India approach that you see. Well, uh, many, many countries have... Uh, have purchased uh, from the, uh, or looked at, at opportunities, and some have seen a discount and acted on it. And, and I, think, I think that's the, the, uh, the sovereign right decisions of these countries. We don't have an oil and gas uh, sanctions or Russian, uh, on, on Russian oil and gas. So I think many countries have elected to go and, and purchase uh, because there is, there has been a discount, and I think that's that's what we saw in the news, if 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 that's what you mean, and uh, many others are going to do the same. So thinking of squeezing barrels outside the market when a discount is there is just illusional in my view. Uh, countries are going to go and buy the cheaper available crude if it fits their refineries. Minister, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much for being with us this morning, the UAE Energy Minister, on some of the big issues in the energy markets right now. We now adapt with David Malpass. He is president of the World Bank, and I know he's laughing at me because he knows I really want to quiz him on yen devaluation dynamics, but that would be an inappropriate uh, this morning with the president of the World Bank. Mr. Malpass, thank you for uh, joining. I want to cut to the chase, David, with wheat down 32% from the panic uh, peaks. If you shifted the World Bank to aid for whatever ends up in Ukraine, how will you affect that process? Hi, hi, Tom. It's a worldwide problem. So the the prospect of wheat shortages drove up the price, uh, but uh, the markets are really adjusting some. Uh, the World Bank puts a lot of money into food aid, which is one of the crises facing poor people. We we do $17 billion per year uh, in various forms of food support. One of the critical things for people uh, in poor countries is that they're, they have targeted support, meaning uh, not subsidies that uh, that support everyone uh, and are costly, but can you target it toward the people that need it the most? As we look at Ukraine, then we're, we're, we've put in a lot of money already. We were able to disperse in the in recent weeks over half a billion dollars, which is very fast mm -hmm. aid that was much needed by the government at the here at the at the beginning of the or early in the in in the war. And uh, I'm hopeful the headlines right. that you were. You were just giving sound optimistic. Thanks. David, I am absolutely fascinated, and I say this with great respect for the institution. 
how the World Bank treats Russia. Moments ago, Johnson & Johnson with further sanctions. Uh, as many of you, I'm sure, have heard in the Bloomberg world, Bloomberg making uh, decisions in the last 48 hours on a use of our terminal within Russia. David Melpass, how does the World Bank address a sanctioned Russia around your usual mandates? Russia is a shareholder of the World Bank and uh, participates in board discussions. We stopped lending to them in 2014 after the Crimea invasion, and we've suspended all operations and programs uh, in Russia and in Belarus uh, in, in the current environment. Our people, um, uh, many people have come out of Russia, uh, and so that's not so much an issue for us. The bigger issue is uh, building the response for not only Ukraine, but also people, the refugees in the Eastern Europe. How do you build the response, David, when you do have uh, these constraints on prices, when you do see, uh, to Tom's point, wheat uh, still is incredibly elevated. You have seen some of the farming uh, fields in Ukraine decimated. Farmers can't get out there. How much is this going to disrupt, frankly, your ability to help and what you think should be priced into the market? The, the, the critical is that supply increase outside of uh, of Russia and and of Ukraine. Ukraine may have some comeback in crops, but they need to need to have fertilizer and seeds and the, meet the planting cycle. So, a critical variable for the world is how responsive is supply elsewhere. That gets into uh, the the uh, uh, the the subsidies that are being done that sometimes stop people farmers from from producing and increasing their output. So that's one. And then as far as the refugees, we have um, a, a great deal of contact uh, with the other agencies that along with the World Bank are responding to, to refugees in Poland, in Moldova, uh, in Romania. Um, and we have programs in each of those that are directly uh, uh, engaging with the refugees and helping the European agencies and the, the national agencies that are helping those people. Well, we hope that your efforts are successful, David. We were talking about what this changes if this ceasefire does come to fruition, if this is real uh, coming to the table on both sides with Ukraine and Russia. How much does that change your outlook? How much of an improvement versus just removing some of the worst tail risks does this present for you? Well, I was watching your market uh, indicators this morning. So you were showing the decline in oil prices. That helps. I was just in Senegal and Morocco. One of the the burdens on on countries that are that are facing uh, uh, that are facing fragility in the region. You know, in North Africa, a big problem is uh, yeah. the weapons inflow coming from Europe through Libya into North Africa into Islamic uh, uh, fundamentalism. That uh, even this morning there was was a bombing in Nigeria. These are big problems. And on top of that, then the price of diesel fuel goes up and of, uh, of wheat goes up. So the, the, uh, the best response from the world can be more production and market access. Uh, for Senegal, the most important thing in the world really is if they were able to, if they were allowed to, to ship peanuts to the United States. Right now, their biggest customer is China. It buys some 400,000 tons per year and uh, the, the U.S. not because All we right. have the, so many barriers. Also, <clears throat> you know, the ethanol subsidies in the U.S. are so punishingly expensive that it distorts there markets. There you go. The common, 
common agricultural policy in Europe. I just want to make the point that there's a lot that the advanced economies can do to allow uh, people to sell to those markets. On ethanol there, there's a David Malpass we know, we love and know from another time and place. Mr. Malpass, one final co uh, uh, comment, if you will. You have a staff that is world-class, including Dr. Pangestu from Indonesia, Maria Elka Pangestu, as she speaks of resiliency and food. How do you bring food resiliency to the planting season of Ukraine? Uh, the, so fertilizer from Western Europe would help. You know, they've been cut off from Belarus. Uh, but I think cessation of the of the violence is the starting point. Mm -hmm. uh, the you know farmers are resilient by nature. They work they work their tails off and they grow a lot for the world. Ukrainian farmers in, included. So you have to stop the war uh, and then quickly provide them enough funding for 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 seeds and for the uh, fertilizer uh that i think those steps can could still be taken here in march david malpass thank you valuable conversation sir and a timely one too thanks for reacting to that breaking news david malpass there the president of the world bank There are moments, John and Lisa, of privilege at Bloomberg, and one of them was a good long decade or more so ago in a small room with Thomas Schelling, the giant of thinking about war, the Nobel laureate, where he sat and I sat mesmerized as Professor Schelling spoke about how you end wars. Michael Kimmage and Liana Fix have taken this to a new, wonderful extreme in Foreign Affairs magazine. Liana Fix is with the Corbell Foundation in Berlin. We're honored that she could join us this morning. Liana, I love how you frame if Russia wins, if Russia loses. Professor Schelling would suggest the only way to end a war is exhaustion. Do we need an exhausted Putin? What we certainly need is we need a sustainable peace and not a provisional peace. And despite the optimistic news of today, this will be the main challenge for Ukraine moving ahead in negotiations. So basically, how to prevent that any negotiated agreement right now with Russia will only leave Ukraine weaker, especially in military terms, and could encourage Russia to come back in a couple of months or a couple of years to finish the business they've started. And that's the <clears throat> crucial the crucial point, how to prevent an unjust peace, as uh, Cicero said, um, and uh, prevent also um, a continuation of a very cruel war that we've seen so far. If Russia wins or Russia loses, is the equal outcome a partition of Ukraine? I think the challenge now is that we don't see this clear-cut options anymore. So Russia is too weak to win. But at the same time, they are too strong to lose. And that makes the situation right now so difficult to navigate. Um, and the Ukrainians have put up a formidable resistance, as we've seen in the last weeks. But again, they are also too weak to finally um, uh, make Russia withdraw from all parts of Ukraine. So the question of territorial concessions that you just raised will be a crucial one in negotiations. And for President Zelensky, who has been able to gather Ukrainians behind his brave and courageous stance, 
um, he has a little room for compromise there because there's no appetite whatsoever to give up on Crimea or on other parts of Ukraine. But also from the Russian side, they will want to um, leave negotiations with successes that they can sell at home. And the minimum success from a Russian perspective would be to have liberated, quote, quote, um, the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. Liana, so that we can understand the points of leverage here and what exactly brought both sides to the table at the place where they are now, was it the sanctions or was it really the resistance that has brought Vladimir Putin to a more compromising stance? Absolutely both of it. And I want to underline this. Without Ukraine's resistance, we would not have seen this incredible sanctions package, also because there was such an international outcry in the European public, in the US public. So what helps Ukraine is to strengthen its negotiation position by weakening Russia's position and putting further pressure on Russia to not put out maximalist positions in negotiations with Ukraine, but to be open for compromises. So this is the moment where we have to keep up pressure on Russia. And only if Ukraine asks us to uh, lose some of the pressure to think about sanctions, then we can consider these options. Our main aim should be how can we help Ukraine to negotiate a sustainable peace? And that should be the goal of all Western policy at the moment. Liana, then it goes to this question of what the West's response should be in order to get Vladimir Putin to continue negotiating and to continue to make good. How much will there be discussions about loosening some of the sanctions in response to a certain period of ceasefire? Is that feasible or does that seem wrong considering the fact that we're still talking about war crimes? This is a discussion that we might have at some point, but this is certainly not the discussion that we should have right now. We've seen in the past that Russian words have always, have very often not been followed up by Russian deeds. So until we really see some um, credible Russian deeds, some credible withdrawals, some signals that Russia is seriously willing to make concessions and to negotiate we should not waste the issue of sanctions yet. Only if we see that there's a credible path ahead and Ukraine asks us to do so, then we should again put our efforts into the service of Ukraine, even if this might be a tough decision to make as a broader strategic goal is certainly to weaken Russia in general, to prevent that Russia has further ambitions towards European security. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, it really is about keeping up the pressure to help Ukraine. Liana Fix, we started with Thomas Schelling. And of course, he defined our study of deterrence and nuclear threat. Is Putin a nuclear threat? He is certainly willing to use nuclear coercion as an instrument. Um, he has a lot, many more conventional means at his disposal before he would actually consider the nuclear option. We've learned from the past that we should never say never when it comes to Putin and to Russia. But again, this is something that at the moment he uses to coerce the West, to deter the West from further support for Ukraine. And that is something where the West should not be intimidated because especially military support for Ukraine even if there is a negotiated outcome, will be incredibly important. Again, because Ukraine should not leave these negotiations weaker than they've entered it 
and be at risk of another Russian aggression in a couple of months or, or, or years, perhaps. So not being intimidated, but at the same time being cool-headed as the U.S. president has been when he did not raise the alert levels of U.S. nuclear forces. That is at the moment the right strategy, but obviously not to tick off anything from the list because the Russian president has proved in the past to do, um, to do things that we've not expected him to do. Liana Fix, thank you of the Corba Foundation. On fixed income on the mystery, Sarada Rajapa joins us now with Society General, where they've got just terrific dynamic analysis. Sarada, the dynamics of equities is simple. Down we go, a VIX of 36, boom, up we go with a huge growth rally. Is there any presumption of price down in fixed income and the idea that we get a Hail Mary of lower yield and higher bond prices? Um, I think we're starting to reach some uh, key uh, resistance points, right? 215 tens, for instance, is going to be a a level that I'm going to be watching to see if 10 yields can actually break through that level. But to me, really, all the focus is on the curve, as you guys have been discussing. I mean, the 2 tens part of the curve is very, very close to inverting. It could actually invert by the end of this this week. I was thinking it could invert in the first half. It looks like it's going to happen a lot sooner. So that's really where the focus is right now. The nuanced approach and the derivative expertise of Societe Generale is the idea of a flat curve, same yield, twos and tens, or a true inversion or a depth of inversion. Do you predict a certain negative amount, which gives us that depth of inversion, which signals recession? So I don't think that there's any sort of a magic number that we're watching. What typically tends to happen is when the curve gets flat or inverted, uh, you tend to see that in about a year's time uh, or year's lag, I should say, you start seeing a, a meaningful slowdown in growth. And so, you know, the, the inversion starts you know, first in the back of the curve typically. And then as we progress, it starts moving towards the front end of the curve. Now you're seeing the two stands part of the curve. Chair Powell is looking at the three-month tenure part of the of the curve and saying that part of the curve is not inverted, so we're not concerned. But the two cents part of the curve is saying that the ten, that the three-month part of the curve is going to start three-month rates are going to start <clears> moving <throat> higher, and that the that the next sort of progression is going to be for front end uh, front front part of the yield curve to start to to flatten. Regardless, I would say within a a, a year's time, you're going to see. Uh, that the impact of the flatter curve on the broader economy, and that typically what uh, you know tends to lead to a slowdown in growth. Subhadra, we had on Steve Off of Federated earlier, and he said when he looks at the yield curve, he sees a bond market that's pricing in a soft landing. Do you agree? It's hard to know because you know the, I think the bond market, the reaction to the bond market, is a lot more dire than what you're seeing in all the other markets, right? Like you, like you were you were discussing earlier, financial conditions, broadly speaking, are still very, very accommodative. So really, what the bond market seems to be a little bit ahead of itself in expressing concern about the the uh, the the health of the economy, if you will, and that's when it gets really, really tricky because it's going to be very, very hard for the Fed to be able to raise rates from from the zero lower bound to 250 uh, you know basis points in a matter of you know six to eight months and not have the economy um, you know have a, some sort of a hard landing, and that's really where it gets very tricky. Um, and that's why I think it's 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 really hard to know. 
Do you think, Subhadra, that what we're seeing in risk markets, and I'm not just talking about equities, but also in riskier credit, that basically the bet is that the Fed will have to backtrack on some of the hawkishness, that they won't be able to go that fast, or else they will uh, be able to, and the economy will have accelerated to enough uh, of a degree that it will be able to hold in. And basically, are they pricing in something that seems increasingly impossible? Yeah, I mean, I think I would agree with that view in the sense that the Fed is very, very eager to raise rates very fast, at least you know, front load these rate hikes because, you know, they can. The 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 unemployment numbers are, are very, very low. The economy, generally speaking, is very strong. The growth trajectory for this year is very strong. So they're very, very eager to front load these these rate hikes. You know, we'll have to see what happens in, in the latter half of the year after they, say, deliver a 50 basis point rate hike at the May meeting and perhaps even at the June meeting, and then they announce the runoff in the balance sheet. You know, we'll have to see how the market reacts. If the market still holds up, then they could probably raise rates once a meeting for the remainder of the year. If not, they're going to have to pause, you know, sometime in, in, in the latter half of, of this year or perhaps even early next year. So I think the Fed is very much keen on front loading these rate hikes, whether they can keep that sustained pace of, of hiking uh, this year and well into, into next year is, mm-hmm. is yet to be seen. Sabrata, we are not there yet. We are a little bit away to three digits from a positive yield on the German two-year piece. What does that signal? That, you know, the, the world is, is getting to a, a non-negative, uh, you know, bond yield environment because of the inflation dynamics. So inflation is not just a U.S. story. It's, it's, it's a global story. You're starting to see even, you know, your Japanese, you know, JGB yields start to hit up against uh, yield curve control uh, restrictions there. So I think that the, the general trend, and especially in Europe, the uh, the inflation dynamics are a lot more pronounced because of their dependence on uh, Russian oil, and they have, I would say, a greater propensity to or uh, to go into a recession because of their dependence on on Russian oil and commodity prices in general. The U.S. in some respects is is much more insulated because we're energy independent. Uh, so I think the move now reflects, uh, you know, the reality of the inflation dynamics and the global inflation dynamics with, you know, with bonds getting out of negative territory across, uh, you know, across the world. Sabadra, thank you. Sabadra Jaffa there of SOCGEN. Right now on what this devolves down to for investment, Brent Schutte joins us, Chief Investment Strategist at Northwestern Mutual, where short term, as I'm going to suggest, three years. Brent, the emotions of the moment, the uncertainty of the moment, causes confusion for anyone looking long-term. How do you adapt? Well, I think Jonathan hit the nail on the head in his opening when he talked about this being a positive, but certainly a lot of uncertainty. But I think the most important part is it's a little bit less than it was yesterday. And so to me, that is why the market's moving higher, and that's a positive in the near term. In the longer term, I still think you have room for the market to move higher. Um, certainly, the rise in oil prices have put upward pressure on inflation. The Fed could be raising rates here. But I think all in all, the economy is still in a decent place. And I think that means that we have room to move higher in the near to intermediate term. Brent, do you think that, frankly, if we do get some sort of resolution or at least not a worsening of the situation, that gives the Fed the green light to go as aggressively as they can? 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess to me, I think the Fed is going to try to tighten as much as they need to to get the inflation narrative uh, under control just a bit. And certainly they've done that with their words. We'll see if their actions follow. I still don't believe the Fed intends to cause any sort of economic recession by over tightening. They want to tighten just enough to actually um, you know, keep inflation under control and to keep expectations under control, which has been lost in all this. The five-year, five-year forward break-even is at 240. That is hardly out of control. This isn't 1984. This is 2022. And to me, that doesn't mean the Fed, that means the Fed doesn't have to overdo it. Inflation expectations are not embedded yet, and it's not permanent. Meanwhile, I was looking at this uh, this dashboard that Gina Barton Adams of Bloomberg Intelligence put out, where basically only 10 out of 15 indicators were flashing yellow or red, and only five remaining are green, including relative earnings per share growth. However, all of these flashing signs, which are you actually watching to see whether you should change some of your constructive view? Yeah, I think people are focused on the yield curve uh, first and foremost. And to me, I, I would take that with a grain of salt. I mean, let's think about the 10-year Treasury and think about what has actually happened with quantitative easing over the past few years and how distorted the term premium is probably on the 10-year Treasury. Uh, and so to me, I would take that with a grain of salt. Certainly, it shows that we are aging in the cycle. We are getting further along. There is no doubt about that. But a recession could still be you know, two years away. And during that time period, the market can move higher. And I guess could kind of put this into numbers because I noticed the spread between the 10 and 2 was somewhere around 8 basis points this morning. In 1994, the spread between the 10 and the 2-year was 8.5 basis points to the positive. What happened after that? You didn't have a recession to 2001, and you had one of the best equity markets in the history of this country. And so take it with a grain of salt and realize that it is one indicator. And overall, to me, the consumer is still in good shape. Leading economic indicators are still rising, and corporations are still in good shape. And so I don't think a recession is imminent, and I think we still have room to run. Brent, we were weaned on the optimal portfolio. Some of us a little bit older know that price down, yield up can occur. It's called a bear market in the bond market. Great. Does the efficient portfolio work here with bonds in retreat? Yes, but I think you need to think about it a little differently. And so people think about a 60-40 as just being the S&P in the bond market. We think about it as including commodities and gold. And so I think people have gotten a lesson in diversification over the past few months, and I think they're going to continue to get one going forward. You need to own those as hedges against different economic environments, which is what we have seen. I think the S&P 500 is still, frankly, expensive. You get better earnings growth right now, all else being equal, outside of the S&P 500 at a cheaper price. And so I'm not suggesting investors run from that, but I still want to be in things that are cheap because I do think there's still upward pressure on the bond market. And I think the economy has further room to run. Hey, Brent. Thank you, buddy, for being with us. Brent Schutte of Northwestern Mutual. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.